This is the Head Torch Podcast. Welcome. Our mission, to create a mentally healthy culture at work. Keeping the conversations alive, our podcasts bring you great presenters and stimulating discussion on mental health and well-being in the workplace. Enjoy. For those of you that don't know Head Torch, what we do is we work with organisations large and small. Our aim is to create that proactive, mentally healthy culture working with every level within an organisation. And so today, um, as I say, we have our, our, our wellbeing hour. And so let me just give you a little sort of outline in terms of the scheduling for, for this session. So first of all, I'm going to introduce Miles in more detail, and then he and I will get into conversation. I'm basically be asking him lots of questions, and he will then pose us a question, and we'll have the opportunity to discuss that. So we'll be asking you to unmute and share your share your questions, share share your thoughts, also with with. Um, in response to Miles' question. And then I'll be going back to Miles to ask him to share some top tips before asking him a, him a few rapid fire questions towards the end. So my great pleasure to introduce you, Miles. Thank you so much for joining us. Miles Keane is an executive director at Coots & Co. He has been in the banking world for a long, long time, 31 whole years, 10 years at Lloyd's, 21 at Coots. We first met, I believe it's 2018. Is that right, Miles? I think it was. Something like that, yeah. Yeah. When Miles spoke at an event at RBS in Edinburgh called This Is My Story, when he shared his remarkable story and his remarkable story uh, continues to grow and to build and he'll be sharing some of that with us today, I'm sure. All of what he has achieved led to him and his colleague actually being honoured with the Wellbeing Award for Leadership and Culture on behalf of Coots. Uh, at their 2018 Employee Wellbeing Awards. So it's my very great pleasure to have you along with us today, Miles. First of all, do introduce yourself with your mystery object. My mystery object. So uh, yeah. so my, my mystery object is my running shoes. So, um, so I'm Miles Keane, as, as um, Amy said, Executive Director at Coots, um, my my day job is 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 as, as a private banker, so I look after the sort of the lending, the banking, the wealth management, and financial planning needs of our clients. I I look after entrepreneurs. Um, I've in the past had a, a very sort of big sort of side of the desk role, um, looking after the well being interests at Coots, and I did that for about four or five years before handing that on to to a new team, which in its continued to involve. But the running shoes are. I, I, it's a very much a therapeutic thing for me. I mean, one of the things I learned about really good mental health is, you know, you can't underestimate the importance of getting up and being active, you know, whatever your sort of, you know, ability is just going for a walk or going for a run, but running was a real, you know, doing, getting into the park run, which is something I've, I've been doing for over 10 years now when I, after I was ill, was a, was a real, real help to me. So I, it's something that's a big part of me uh, and now my wife and kids run as well so it's all it's all really nice fantastic a family sport so and and it held held you in good stead for a very long walk yesterday i believe Can yes you tell us a yes little bit so, about that yeah our staff charity a lovely organization called future frontiers and sort of a, a mentoring 
underprivileged children with potential. So we, we always have a charity every year, but then we walk from, we've had this baton relay. So it's been all around the country, all the offices across the UK celebrating 330 years of Coots. It's our 330th birthday, which is quite staggering. But we walk from Orpington to our main office at 440 Strand. So I've got plenty of blisters this morning. So 20 miles. Good for you. 20 miles for miles. Wonderful. Okay. So tell us, Miles, you a little bit about your, your journey, your story. I think things started to happen kind of seriously, if you like, in the world of mental health around about the time of the financial collapse. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about what happens then? Yeah, sure. So it was, um, so I first sort of hit what I call hit the buffers, um, would be 2008, but, um, and I was, you know, much later diagnosed with an anxiety disorder and, and we sort of pinpointed it back actually to a lecture that I'd heard the year before the crisis, which was all about subprime. And, you know, it was just a very, you know, a very skilled lady professor from New York came over and, and sort of was giving us a sort of educational talk and it was, oh my goodness, this is all going to happen and which it did. Um, and. Being part of, I mean, RBS is very well documented, the sort of the difficulties they got into. And Coates was a wholly owned subsidiary of, um, of RBS. So a lot of clients were, you know, understandably like everyone were quite nervous. So I just, I just remember having some, you know, really in-depth conversations with clients. There's one particular day when, you know, there were rumors out there that it was all looking pretty dicey. And I was talking some of the leading entrepreneurs in the UK, just the fear factors that they were sort of sharing with me, you know, stockpiling food, cash, gold, arming themselves. It was like worried about civil unrest and it was really quite frightening and it probably wasn't far off the mark, being honest. Um, and I just sort of developed a horrendous anxiety. Um, and I remember, I remember coming home that evening on the stra uh, um, home on the train and I picked up an evening standard and it was, um, an article, it was basically about banker bashing because there was a lot of it going on, and you know, understandably. And I was sort of just catastrophizing over everything. And there was, um, oh, I said that might happen. Um, I was catastrophizing over everything. And there was an article about, you know, bankers being dragged from their homes and lynch and all this. And it was like, oh my goodness, you know, and I just had a, a terrible weekend and didn't really get over it and then lost, um, didn't sleep for sort of two or three weeks and anyone who said sleep deprivation is, it's, it's kind of a form of torture. So I went from a fairly rational, clear thinking person to someone who just absolutely lost control in the space of about three weeks to the point that, you know, I was thinking of taking my own life and I was in a really, really terrible way. And, and something triggered about three weeks later, which just sent me into a spin, somehow got myself home. Um, I just left early on, at, you know, literally in the morning on a Monday, got home and then my wife was there and I just completely broke down and straight to the GP. And within, within 90 minutes, I was sat in the priory talking to their, their head honcho, which was really, it was quite interesting because he said, well, tell me the story, you know, work how, and then, you know, just, just to show the realness of the situation it was, he, he sort of in, in, not in jest, he said, is my pension fund going to be all right? Cause you know, the markets were in a real state and so you really yeah just you remember these things afterwards so he said look you, you know you're kind of you haven't gone completely crazy there's a there's a you know there's a clear logical reason why your brain sort of work that way but you pass the point of no control and it was at that point they basically said look we'll, we will put you to sleep 
for about a week and we'll feed you. And, and so I kind of came out of this sort of dark hole and, you know, something, oh, I could breathe. I, I didn't feel anxious. I, you know, I just had the complete shutdown and, and taken out of society for a week. And, uh, and actually that was a so thing. Was that, the real... to, that was to help your brain decompress, was it? Your I mind? think so. So I think when, once you get past a certain point and you, you, you literally get a chemical imbalance in your brain, you then become psychotic. And, and that, that was the real danger zone because you're not then in control of what you do. And that was a real concern for them. So that's why I needed that sort of, that safe house and sort of. And did you, was your connection with the primary three work? I'm assuming. Yes. So I've got private medical and I mean, and it was brilliant. I mean, literally within 90 minutes of being in, in the GP surgery, you know, my wife had phoned the helpline with Aviva, but they were our insurers. So, you know, I was very, very fortunate to be able to have that facility yeah. available. I'd be, you know, I'd perish the thought if I hadn't had that and because, you know, there's obviously a shortage of mental health services, but because I was, you know, it was part of the package that work offered and still do, um, you know, I'm forever grateful for that. Sure. So was that it then a week in coma and you were fixed? No. So basically I was in there all in for about three weeks. Um, I was then sort of phased back home, um, sort of there a day, home a day. Rather stupidly, I was back at work within probably about five weeks. Um, and this, you know, this was a sort of some of the learnings. It was sort of, you know, kind of quiet, kept quiet and, well, he'll be all right. You know, it's sort of, and I, I, I really need, I need to get back, but I must go back and you know, I'm going to fall behind and all this. So it's, you know, when I look back, it was just back to crackers really. So it was your decision to go back into work yeah. after, after five weeks. And how much discussion was there with work about that? At, at the time, it, yeah, it wasn't much. There was, the, you know, they're obviously aware of what's going on. It was sort of a, a place, you know, there was a few people that were aware because there's also this, you know, blimey masters in the priory. I didn't want, you know, it was almost like, I don't want that to sort of get out. There was that sort of fear factor of it all, right. which is quite a learning for, for, for later down the line. Um, and it just will show you how much the sort of culture's changed, whether it, you know, I'm sure I would have had the support, but it was that feeling, oh, you know, goodness sake we need to sort of get keep this sort of private and as as, as, as you know quiet yeah, as we can exacerbating uh, the stigma yeah and then and actually it was it was a, it was quite strange because i i sort of came out quite quickly it was a very fast in and almost a fast out for that particular thing um what i hadn't really appreciated was that i had this undiagnosed condition which it was, a, it was only about three years later that that was actually formally diagnosed. And so basically what happened, um, I came back, I was sort of, you know, a bit shaky and the world was in a bit of a state because it was sort of right in the middle of the financial crisis. So everyone, you know, to be honest, everyone, everywhere in the country was feeling, was feeling it. So particularly in finance, um, and I actually performed quite well. So I, I sort of came back on it. Yeah. I didn't really change anything about what I was doing. It was just like, oh, right. I'm back. I'm cracking on. Yeah. Um, and then it was about three years later, lots and lots of change, regulatory changes at work, the retail distribution review and the mortgage conduct of business review. So all the roles really change and it's tons and tons of change. And change was one of the things that set me off. I didn't realize at the time. And there was 
I don't know, it, it was very difficult for the whole industry, but I, I hit a point where I just felt myself going down this slippery slope again. Um, again, didn't really talk about it. I just sort of, oh, I'm, I'll try and battle through it. And of course, you know, if you're not changing things, you're going to get the same outcome. So this, this was really frightening for me because I, I went down again. So it's three years after I was in the first time. So but can I just, uh, yeah. just, um, so did you, it, look, looking back, do you think people were, were saying, let's talk about how you're going to change things and you weren't hearing it or were you not getting that message at all? No, no, it wasn't. It wasn't because I kept it quiet and it was sort of, oh, he's back. He's, he's kind of okay. I just, I just sort of cracked on really. I mean, look, you know, with hindsight, you know, it, it was totally the wrong thing to do. Um, but the, the second time was a lot worse because I was sort of thinking, you know, I was reading articles, if you, if you've had mental health problems and you've had two big long stints off at work, you know, you're very unlikely to go back again, you catastrophizing some of the thinking errors that I didn't understand or know about or had been educated on. Um, and I was, because the world wasn't blowing up in terms of the financial crisis, I thought this is, a, this is now really my problem. And I, and I, I didn't know how to handle it. And it was, it was awful. I was just, I was sat in there thinking I'd never work again. And that was, that was terrifying with young children. Yeah. Um, and at the, uh, so the, the guy in the next room, the only person I ever mentioned by name, cause you, you don't tend to do it, but he's been very public about it. Well, I've done the next room to Antonio Hortosario, who was the, the head honcho at Lloyd's. And he had a lot longer time off than me. So this, again, it's a learn cause he, he actually got properly better and he's, you know, gone on to do amazing things, particularly around mental health with Lloyd's. Um, so I kind of soldiered back. What surprised me is the amount of people that knew about it when I went back. I had a great reception back, you know, great to see you and everything else. And, you know, some people said years later, I never expected to see you back at work sort of thing. And again, I was sort of, I did have a chat. So it was quite interesting. There was a really good guy that was running the team, wider team. And when I went back, I said, look, I need to, I need to have a chat with you. Um, cause look, I said, look, I haven't been well. And. And he, I started telling my story and he said, and he kind of said, and it, it, oh, you don't need to, I, you, honestly, you don't need to tell me that sort of thing. And it wasn't a question mm -hmm. of, I don't want to hear it. I got the impression I don't, you know, this will be all over your file and everything else. And I, I just sort of said, well, no, I've, I've really got to tell you this because uh, you know, you, you kind of need to keep an eye out for me as well. And it, so it, that was a kind of a nice thing, but also it just sort of, when I look back, actually th there wasn't the sort of it wasn't the response that should have happened, if that makes sense. Yeah. So to cut a long story short, I basically was in work for another year. And I can only think it was sort of presenteeism. So I was just, don't know if I was really there or not, not in, in person. It was just a, a very difficult year where I just sort of soldiered on. I was probably very unproductive and probably was taking up other people's time to kind of look after me. And it just got to a point where I said, I can't carry on. This was a year later. So four years after I'd first gone into the Priory and I just said to look, I've got to have some time out. I'm, I don't need to go out the Priory. I just, I don't know what I need to do. And a guy said, right, you're going to, you know, we want to refer you to occupational health. And I said, fantastic. You know what? I just want to get better. And, um, 
And normally, I think the, 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 the sort of perception at the time of occupational health, you know, you cut it off in a white van, you won't be seen again. But this person I went to see, my wife was bit with, with me and he diagnosed me in about 30 minutes, generalized anxiety disorder. And, it, and I kind of said, oh, what's that? And he, the analogy he used, he said, well, in, you ever seen Toy Story? He said, it, it, everything gets code red and everyone panics and there's hysteria and everyone's charging around and, you know, it's a complete chaos. He said, that's kind of where you are. And what happens is your brain just gets frazzled and it just shuts down and then you just can't, can't do anything. And I said, that, yeah, I really resonate with that. Mm-hmm. So I said, what do I need to do? And he said, well, you need to go and see an anxiety specialist. And I was thinking, you know, I've had the guys in the Priory here and surely, I, you know, they, that should have happened. So he referred me to a guy in the London psychology clinic, um, a guy called Blake Stobie, who's a, you know, a real world expert in anxiety disorders. And I had eight sessions with him, best eight sessions, I think, time investment I've ever had on anything I've ever done. Very hard work. He did a big fat fine for about an hour and a half and then gave me lots of exercises and writing things down and lots of cognitive behavior therapy, which I hadn't really understood what it was. Um, so lots of stuff. skills and practical things that you could do for yourselves. Absolutely. yourself moving forward. And quite, and so that was, the, that, was the, that was the difference, wasn't it? That was the change that really... Yeah. Exactly, Quite because my brother, my brother was a great support to me. So having us a good support network was really important. Yeah. And, and to be honest, you know, work were fantastic. They, you know, they really were really supportive. Um, but my brother sort of, you look, you have got to change something. Because if you do the same old stuff, you get the same old outcome. And he was so right. And actually, it was getting that diagnosis. So the chap called Al Rawlinson, who used to work with, he was the one that said, look, this, you've got to do this, Miles. And there's all sorts of declarations and they look horrendous. I said, I'll do whatever and sign whatever. And, um, but they, you know, report came back. Um, and what happened was I said, look, I need some time out and I'd like to think about what I'd like to do. And I'd, I'd like work to think about what they would like me to do when I came back. And we both so- thought of the same thing. So my role changed, not massively, but a different focus. And no need to elaborate on that, but that, that was quite fundamental. And when I came back, I was very much phased in, you know, there was a, a company called Unum who was sort of like a rehabilitation organization that again, worked, yeah. sort of linked in with really good. So I had regular checkups. I was seeing my GP quite regularly. I was on, you know, a serotonin boosting, um, drug as well, which was just sure. very, very helpful. So and, can I can I just cut yeah. in there, Miles? So cool. you were you were getting yourself better. So what what happened then in terms of um, taking your learning in into the into the bank, if you like, to, is spreading that word. Tell tell us about that. Yeah, uh, so it's a really good question, and that it, it, it was really interesting how it all then unfolded. So basically, I got better and started really performing well at work. I just, the stuff I learned just freed my head of, you know, lifetimes of worries and very simple mechanisms, which are now very intuitive for me. And I think because word had got around, you know, miles hadn't been well, you know, you're off for three long periods of time, people are going to notice. But then I started getting all these taps on the shoulder, miles going to any chance of a coffee. And I kind of knew exactly what they're going to talk about. They said, I know you've had some, been through some stuff yourself. I'm, I'm really struggling here. And 
they, I kind of shared a few things and never to diagnose. I said, have you talked to your line manager? Oh no, don't fancy that. Employee assistance programs. There's some brilliant resources that we had under our notes that I, you know, I wasn't really aware of at the time, apart from when Alice, the last time he was looking after me, sort of sent me links and things. So there's all this great resource and, and people just didn't know, and they didn't feel comfortable to talk to their line manager. So I, I sort of, I don't know, I must've had 50 or 20 people over the course of about 18 months. I was having these conversations with. Wow. And then we had a, a, a very challenging staff survey where I was uh, identified a lot of stress in the business, which is quite common in financial services organization. And within the diversity inclusion team, they want, they, they sort of said, well, we want, we're going to create something called lifestyle. And that's kind of what we want to tackle. And I took on a mentor who was ran the LGBT network and I met him for a coffee and told my story and he, you know, he sort of fell off the chair. I thought, well, I had no idea, Miles, you know, and ne you never struck me as someone who would have lived through that sort of thing. So he said, I'll come along and talk to the team because we, we, you know, we really need to sort of try and tackle this. So I then went to the team, presented my story that, you know, the same sort of reaction, really powerful. And, and you, you talk, talk through the story, you get such engagement from people. So you then got them and you can really message things. So what I said is it'd be really nice to tackle this. I don't quite know what I want to do, but I need to speak to HR. I need to speak to the, you know, the NatWest team that got all the resources available. And I need to speak with a bunch of line managers. I need to go out and look at what other companies are doing. And Lloyd's at the time was sort of developing stuff. And, and this whole sort of network suddenly sort of opened up. And we, we had a guy called Mike Hayworth who had a different story where he helped someone he hadn't suffered himself, but he, it was someone who'd approached him that wasn't, he wasn't their direct manager. So we worked on a sort of an idea and a strategy for probably about seven or eight months. Cause what was really important for us, if you go live with something, you've got to have some authenticity and backing there. Absolutely. And we pitched it to the board, um, of Coots. And it was, you know, some of it was about line manager training. Some of it was about communication, hub ambassadors. We put this sort of whole strategy together and Mike, Mike had his own coach and he said, the coach would get your story in. And, and we had about a five, about a 10 minute slot at the board. And then that was going to be it. And we took, we basically, we stopped after an hour and when we left the room, they had about another hour talking about it because it just. Wow sort of really had an impact and, and getting that backing from the top of the organization is so key. They all really got it and really cared and wanted to do something about it. But the great, do you think what, it was, do you think it was because you were, you know, you were at a pretty high level within the bank yourself. Do you think that was what helped you to get in at that level or what, what I, enabled I you that, to get that meeting? Probably get did that help. Slot? Yeah, I think it did help. But when you, start talking stats one in four and i remember i said look one in four has got this and i looked around the room and there's a couple of eyes flickering i went yeah so that's about in here as well i imagine you know it was just a sort of and you could just tell it you know it was sort of had that sort of impact i think it did help and mike was again mike's quite quite a senior guy as well but i don't think that's everything i think if you've got someone that's got a very powerful story that's, you know, but and what we, what we were prepared to do something about it. You have to own it and really, well, it was unbelievable amount of work, but so purposeful and 
and rewarding. I mean, it, yeah. it was it was the most interesting. It sounds thing. like I mean, you were. It sounds like you were really well planned before you went in as well. You know, you had yeah, that, you had the that, story. You also had the ideas of how. Well, tell us a bit more of then what happened after that. You'd had that hour long session with them. Um, they kept talking. Where did it go after that? So what then happened is we we launched. So um, so so they gave us permission to go off and sort of stuff together we then did that we fine-tuned it and when we were ready to launch we have a business briefing every wednesday the whole you know make all the people in the strand and on on, on video will be so it's pretty 250 or so people there and it was um our start charity that year was care is uk and there was a, a girl talking about the challenges she had with her with her grandparents and looking after them and i literally had about three minute slot at the end to say a little bit about well-being um I know you, you know, we've posted a few things just saying a few things are coming. We should be ready in about three or four weeks time. Here's a little snippet. And by the way, this is kind of why I got involved in this. And in about two minutes, I just articulated my story and it was, I think by 10 o'clock, so that meeting finished at quarter past nine, by 10 o'clock, I probably had over a hundred emails in my inbox from people saying how refreshing to see someone at a senior level talking about that, how right. refreshing that the, we, yeah, keeps and we're taking this seriously and, 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 and actually there's some really good resources there already. Uh, and then people saying, do you know what? I've been really struggling. I've just haven't been comfortable talking about it. And we knew then I thought, yeah, this is really going to work. It's going to be hard graph, but this is really great. It's and amazing. it just, it honestly just snowballed. Yeah, it's there. amazing, isn't it? How much, how much we go into ourselves when we're when we're struggling, and yet when when somebody, you know, like yourself, decides I'm going to talk about this, this it just it opens the floodgates, doesn't it? Mm. People and it was really early on enabled. Lots of, I mean, lots. It's great to see lots and lots of companies do it now, but it was quite. Um, I remember at the time there were so few people doing, particularly in financial services. Um, but you know, uh, and what was really interesting about the whole, the whole of the sort of RBS and now NetWest strategy was all around early catching it early, um, and having those resources to, you know, lots about resilience, lots about support, um, practical guides on just about everything you can think of. And then it's since, you know, developed into lots of other things and really amazing stuff that go, we realize how lucky we are in terms of what's been put together over time, but there was fantastic collaboration. I mean, we were part of a, you know, like an early start of, you know, let's, let's get the debate going. And then it just, everyone, loads of people came forward to get involved. They were all really genuine about it. The collaboration yeah. that went on it and it, it, it was lovely. And then we started, me and Mike thought, well, actually we'll go and talk, talk to the industry about this. So we went out and talked to other organizations about what they were doing, but we, you learn so much from hearing things that work well, things that don't work well or yeah. from other organizations. So. Absolutely. Do you want to share some of these ideas that I know that you shared within your, within the learning and development that you, that you spread out? Uh, yeah, of course. So these, would you like to talk? Oh, so, oh, so these were, so when we, um, what, one of the integral things that we did was we said, to the board, we'd like to have an hour with every single line manager in Coots 
because one of the sort of the, the most stressed population, according to lots of research, is the Lyme manatees because they kind of, they get it from below and above, as it were. Um, and when we went, to, so we, we put together a sort of a training session, which partly articulated all the support that was available from, from NatWest and the group, but also telling our story and then saying, well, here's some really good things that we've actually learned that have been really helpful to us. And some of them are around the cognitive behavior therapy. So my, um, my guy from Blake Stovey, the anxiety specialist, he, he quoted a stat that I've never forgotten. He said, you know, what percentage of things that people generally worry about don't happen. And, uh, you know, and it's 94%. I don't know the name of the study, but it's a German PhD study. 10,000 people got interviewed. And then he, he talked to me about worrying and he said, well, yeah, do you, what, yeah, what do you do when you worry? And basically, if you think of worrying as a verb, an action, it, it isn't an action. <laughs> you, you basically get stuff in your head and you sort of catastrophize and it spins around and there's no output and it absolutely zaps you of energy. One of the big things people who've got anxiety or stress is, is how exhausted they always feel. So he sort of, in my own mind, he leveled that one out. He said, look, so, so in a way, worrying is, is kind of a mugs game because it, it takes a lot of energy and it doesn't actually do anything. And, and the cognitive behavior therapy sort of turns worrying into actions for me. But the worry tree is a really simple one. It's a bit like the serenity prayer. Is there anything I can do about this particular issue? Yes or no. And, you know, sadly, there's a lot of awful things happening in the world at the moment. We've got absolutely no control over. So if the answer's no, you've got to somehow try and let it go. Um, and, and a great new, one of the sad things about lockdown was the fact that you know, to let something go, you typically distract yourself and do you, and, and do something that you really enjoy. So if there is, if you've got one of these six percenters, so this things that you've really got to sort out, um, cause it's going to happen and you are in control of it. Your question is, do I deal with it now or do I deal with it later? And the times I used to get something on a Friday night, I'd worry about it all weekend. Um, and you know, just not do anything about it. And I felt really drained. He said, I now sort of either deal with it there and then, or I just diarize it. I might set aside some time to think about it. Um, but it, it was very, a very simple metric that I use. Lovely, a lot. Yeah. It's, it's great. It's a great, um, great way to, to deal with it in our, in our heads, yeah. isn't it? So tell us briefly about, about the being in the present. Just tell us briefly about so this. So the one lecture that I really resonated with when I was in the Priory, there was a cognitive behavior specialist that came in. And he pulled out a pound coin and said, Miles, I think you're a bit like a pound coin. And he asked me, how many sides have a pound coin got? And I went two, heads and tails. And he said, that's interesting. And he said, there's actually three. And of course, there was the small side. And what he tried to articulate, he said, Miles, you, you are always in the big side. So one is the past and one is the future. And he said, you're always worrying about things that happened last week or you're panicking about something that's happening next week. The little thin strip is the present. And he said, the present's the only time you can actually do anything. And you're so not in the present because you're always worrying. You've got all this clutter in your head and everything else. And I really got that. And I thought, wow. And then, you know, so we, we kind of worked on things that got me in the present. 
And when I came to do the training, I thought, well, actually I'll talk about the coin analogy, but what I said, what, what have I become in terms of my mindset? And it was like, a the only thing I could think of was a stick of rock, not for, cause it's hard, but it's, it's basic shape. So it's a long stick with two little small ends, which are the past and the future. Cause you're always going to have a think about stuff that's going on, but the big long side is I spend all my time in the present now. And that, that has given me capacity to do so much more. I mean, I've probably got more things that I could worry about now than I had when I was ill, lots more responsibility, a bigger role, but I've just, because I'm always in the moment, I've, I've just seemed to have all this capacity to do things. And that, that was a really poignant thing. And the last one there, this is in a lot of, these are thinking errors. So what I learned a lot about was how the mind basically tricks most people. A lot of people just don't think about these things, but some of the pictures there, there's one, my favorite one is sort of third along, um, second one down catastrophizing. So that's turning a mountain, uh, a mulgill into a mountain. That's the, about the code red. The other one is black and white thinking, which was a, um, you know, I was either totally right, totally wrong and very little in the middle. And there was a very good sort of metric that I, I learned about sort of looking at a range of things that could happen. Mental filtering is the sort of, there's a little filter with all the positives that you just take out of your head because when you've got anxiety or depression, you really get down on yourself. And I remember my brother saying, you know, when did you suddenly get really bad at everything? Well, I was you're not, you know, and, and he sort of said, you know, who's your best boss being, who's your worst boss being, what were they like and how are you with yourself? And I was my worst boss every time, you know, not that I've had any bad bosses, but you know, always critical, setting self unrealistic challenges, giving yourself a hard time. You know, it doesn't get you anywhere. So learning, and of course, when you're at school, no one ever talks about how your mind works and, and, and things like cognitive behavior therapy. So I think it's really, it'd be such a good thing that they, if they did it in the school, because, you know, these negative automatic thoughts that everyone gets, you, you know, you, you sometimes hang on to them and that's why people get really sort of stressed and anxious about things. Whereas. Yeah. If you know about them, you can see them coming, just let them go, go let them go through. Um, so when we did the training, we shared some of these things and they were real game changers for people. And thought, so we never try and diagnose, we just sort of shared what's really helpful. And when you started Absolutely. with that, and then you yeah. said, well, actually you really want to be in a position where you can talk to your teams about this. And people were sort of hardened managers afterwards are saying, you know, I'd never have gone anywhere near this subject, but I'm kind of my duty to now and just making fantastic. sure everyone's okay so that so that was you know that was That's a real brilliant. a real thing. fantastic miles absolutely brilliant what an incredible story thank you for for sharing and and so just so inspiring that you have that you that you you have taken what happened to you which you know it to all turns and purposes sounds pretty dark and and really created something quite phenomenal within within the banking world so absolutely brilliant and here is, uh, you, you have a question for, for us, for everybody here today. Uh, so let uh, Jonah just talk that, talk that out and then we'll, we'll open up the floor for people who are here. Yeah, to... of course. So, so when we did all our research and put things together and, and sort of launched, you know, we think we found a sort of a set of things that really work, which I'll, I'll come on to, um. But I guess the question I would put to everyone on the basis that, you know, people are looking to sort of 
improve things within their workplaces, you know, what can you do individually about it? So what would you like to see your organization doing and, and what can you do individually to sort of either start or enhance the process? Fantastic. And we're just going to put that question into the chat to remind you what it is. If you have a thought in terms of a response to that question, or indeed if you've got any questions for Miles, then please put your hand up as, as uh, um, metaphorically speaking, use that reactions thing and we'll ask you to, to give us your thoughts. Yes, Avril. You just want to unmute yourself, Avril, and tell us which organization you're calling in from today and then give us your thoughts or your question, please. Yeah, I'm Avril Price. I, I'm Corporate Director at Wealdon District Council in, in East Sussex. Um, and I've also got my own uh, business, uh, maybe consultancy, which is sort of consultancy and executive coaching. Right. Um, just really interested in... Um, Miles's observation about having one-to-one -one sessions with managers. Um, I've done a lot of work at, at Wealdon in terms of developing a management leadership program for all our third-tier managers um, called Leading Wealdon Forward. Um, and I do, you know, lots of sort of coaching and action learning, but that was that was a real light bulb moment for me in terms of we've been doing lots of work in cohorts. Um, but just offering the, the managers a one-to-one -one session with with somebody that can actually talk about their well-being and, and mental health uh, is definitely something that I'll be taking away from this session. So, just like to say thanks, thanks for the light bulb moment, Miles. That's brilliant. Thank you. <laughs> now they're an inter very interesting population, um, and, and actually. You know, we tried to form, formula, formulize it as well. So every, every sort of um, discussion, you know, if you have if you have a sort of a, you know a manager having a, a discussion with their member of staff, and you do all your KPIs and metrics that you know you'll do every time, but we we sort of moved up the agenda. That that's the first question was, you know, how are you feeling? How are you really feeling? And we tried to mm -hmm. give them some. Well, there was training available as well, specifically for them to have those conversations with their team members. Yeah, but it just sort of changed change the narrative really quickly and the, yeah. you could just feel the culture changing as a result of that. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Avril. Caroline, Caroline Lester, would you like to tell us which organisation you're coming in from today? Hi there. Um, I, Caroline Lester from 4i Solutions. Um, we offer, we're consultancy offering um, people and culture as well. So we do a lot of co coaching and mentoring. Um, firstly, Miles, thank you so much for sharing your experiences. And I'm so pleased that you actually got the help that you needed. Um, no more than your family are, I'm sure. But um, I think it's a really brave thing that you've come on and spoken about it. I think the biggest thing we need to do is break down the stigma that there is nothing wrong with saying that there's something wrong. You know, I need help. And I think that's the biggest barrier that we need to overcome at first. And especially being in a senior position. You're meant to be seen as a, a person of strength and, you know, nothing phases you and, you know, we battle on and everything else. But actually, we're all human and it's really difficult and everyone has the experiences, but we need to get people talking. So I think in each and every organisation, if we could just battle the stigma to start with and let mm. people know that it really is okay to to just talk to someone, 
anyone. It doesn't have to be your line manager. Just find someone. And um, that even sometimes when you just shared that story, you feel better anyway and you're fine to carry on, aren't you? Um, but I think it's really important that we break down the stigma. But I just wanted to thank you for sharing your experience with us today. No, no, absolute pleasure. I mean, you, you, you spot on on all, all, all of the points and I'll, I'll, I'll cover some of the, you know, towards the end, the, some of the tips and the things that have really worked, but, um, you're absolutely right. Um, you know, the whole stigma and that that's, you know, in a way that's why I probably suffered as much as I did because, yeah. but it was in my own head. It, what, what was interesting though, is when I, you know, for want of a better term, when I sort of fessed up, just amazing support. Yeah. Um, and, and that was nice because, you know, I, you do hear of not all companies having that type of culture. I think it's becoming more mainstream and what you're seeing now are strong leaders showing vulnerability and that that's really impactful because it just reinforces your authenticity behind it. So as a leader in a business, you know, it's, it is totally not all about being strong and everything else. You know, you show a bit of vulnerability in your human side and you just get so, you know, you get more respect and engagement. It's just a natural thing. We're actually showing strength then, aren't you? Because it's, you know, I'm a real person. I have real feelings mm. and, you know, we're all in this together. People want to be led by real people. Exactly that. Yeah. No, well done you. Yeah. Fantastic. Thank you, Caroline. Um, Alan, I can see you've got your hand up. That's brilliant. I'll come to you in a second. I can see that uh, Jill, Morgan, you've put a question here in the chat. I think it's important to equip people with the skills to help their own mental health. But what if they don't want to engage or don't feel they need to? What do you, what do you, what do you think to that, Miles? That's a really tricky one. Um, and we, yeah, so, cause I've had managers talk to me about people in their team where they, where they've struck, where they don't want to open up. Um, I guess what I say to them is, is you can say that's absolutely fine, but always leave the door open. Um, you can't force someone to do something. I think if you have a situation like that, trying to go back and maybe opening up a question. So a nice opening question, a different, not a, you know, it could be that you just have a conversation with them and not, not intending, you know, how's your wellbeing? Just start talking to them and, and sort of chipping away, but in a non-interrogative way, just setting an environment where they perhaps might be more comfortable to talk or it could be if they're not, if, if they're not interested or, or maybe just sort of, if, if your company has the resources, signpost a few things and, you know, I guess it, it, it's hard to know without the particular situation, but if I'm leading a team of seven people, I get, I get the impression someone isn't, has got a problem. They might not want to talk to me. It might be, I engage with someone that knows them that could perhaps find an, another route in. Ultimately you can't force people to talk about it, but as mm -hmm. long as you make it very aware that we have a culture where we, we, we would like to support you. I think that's the important thing. Yeah. I think it's um, great to show that continued empathy, isn't it, Miles? And I think that is also sometimes about being specific. You know, if you can say to someone, I have noticed X, Y, and Z, yeah. I'm concerned, then there's almost no, there's this less, you know, there's less wiggle room, right? Mm. Uh, someone can't deny that X, Y, and Z didn't happen because you were both there, you both saw it, right? Uh, but as you say, Miles, it's it's a very individual thing, isn't it? It's, somebody might actually have people that they're speaking to outside of work who just not want to talk about it at work, mm -hmm. and that's okay. 
you know, where we don't necessarily always have to talk about everything that works if we don't. If we don't want One of the things that works really well with us, and again, it's it's now huge across the whole of NatWest Street, is the ambassador network. So there are, you know, 1,500 plus people within the organization that have been trained, have got an understanding and empathy, know all the resources that people can go and talk to. And and what we sometimes found is we we created an inbox. So, so it's still going a well-being inbox. If someone's ever got a problem, they can ping into that e- e- email box that's controlled by three people. And then we'll set up someone to have a chat with them, whether it be, you know, someone like myself directly or an, a member of the team who tried to judge who might be the best person and then reach out. And sometimes it might be just, oh, can you tell me where X, Y, and Z is? Um, but we, you know, that's a nice sort of quiet thing because not everyone wants to talk to their line manager. Hopefully, yeah, you know, not everyone's cut out for it and, and we respect that. So yeah. you can't be everything to everyone. Correct. But yeah. But the ambassador you know, network, that's worked. Yeah, fantastic. Uh, Alan, let's get you a question. And um, do you want to just unmute yourself? Share with us where you work and then fire ahead with your question. Hello, yes. So I'm Elaine from uh, Litsubishi Electric uh, Air Conditioning Systems in Scotland, large manufacturing site. Um, so I was listening some time ago, a few days back, Miles, to an interview with a psychologist also talking about mental health. And she was saying how um, when she was at work and she had a uh, an operation, she had surgery on her arm. She said everybody was very helpful. Um, I would offer to write for her, offer to open the door and stuff like that while she had the cast on. But when it comes to mental health issues, people don't really assist. And I think part of that is probably because it's not so visible. Not the same as if you've got a physical ailment or some kind of physical disability. So. If you are somebody that has these kind of issues, how do you suggest it, it, to, to make it more visible, to make it more sort of, um, I don't know if public knowledge is the, is the right word, but open so that people can actually help if and when they, they feel like it. That's, it. So, 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 that's a really good question. So, so these are... So people who are sort of keeping it quiet and on the radar, but you would like to have help, but they don't quite know how to. Yeah. Them. I mean, if, or, or anybody in the team, you know, if, mm. uh, if, if, if somebody in that team particularly has a problem, as if it's not visible, probably the other team members aren't going to suggest or support or do very much to be helpful in any way. If they know about it, then maybe there will be more support. So how do you, how do you sort of balance that out with? Telling everybody, but also keeping things reasonably private and reasonably so whatever. So there's a couple of a couple of things there. So um, I think that you know the overall culture and awareness of mental health. If you you know what things that worked really well for us was very early on getting in a couple great speakers. So we had a guy called Johnny Benjamin and Neil Laban. He was a guy that the man on the bridge story. He was going to throw himself off a bridge and track down the guy that helped him and they, they just become, you know, global wellbeing ambassadors. And, and it was a very interesting session that we had, but it was, again, it was one of those sort of first steps to have a culture change. It was sort of people were talking about it and there was a Q and A and you sometimes a Q and A, you don't get any questions, but then once someone talks, other people talk. So things like that were very good. I think, I think from a line manager's point of view, um, we were really, I guess, 
concerned about the lime management population, having heard all the stats out and the, the industry that they are quite stressed, but we wanted to go in with sort of part support, part education. And it was a question of, you know, asking them how well they really know their team and how well do you really know them? Cause there's a, sometimes that everyone has a sort of different relationship sometimes, but I think the really good managers will really know their teams. Um, and, and it, it was almost a challenge back to people to really sort of, you know, do you know them personally? Do you know what their motivators are? And, and I think if, if managers have got that insight as to the members of their team, they're much more likely to pick up on things. And we gave them training, you know, things to look out for changes in, it could be timekeeping or just appearance or irritability and things like that. So there were factors that are quite indicative that someone might have be going through a sort of a depressive yeah. episode. It's key, key changes, isn't it? Key changes in mood and behaviour. Another thing that we would advocate is if somebody has been unwell and and they have they're they're now well again, uh, is is filling in a uh, completing a wellness action plan. And there are various uh, different types of wellness action plans that you can get online. We particularly like the NHS one. Actually, it's, a, it's quite a simple, straightforward one, and that enables somebody who has had uh, a, a period of illness to share, write down and share what uh, what signs people can look out for in them, what helps them if they're unwell, all those sorts of things. Um, it's, it's not a legally binding document and it's something that an individual can complete and then share or not share. But actually even writing it down for themselves can be really helpful and then they can share it with the manager or they might just want to share it with a colleague or whoever. Uh, but that can be a really helpful uh, tool as well. Thank you very much. I'm aware there are other questions, but I'm also keen to hear to hear Miles's further top tips. So let's just share these with everyone. So Miles, if you just want to take us through these fairly rapidly, that would be lovely. <laughs> what we um we went to a presentation that Lloyd's did when they launched their line manager training, and they sort of said there's no silver bullet about this, and then. When we put things together, we launched, you know, and we kept reviewing it because you have to continually evolve it. We sort of, we sort of, myself and Mike and others sat down and said, you know, what are the things that if you're going out and suggesting to a company to make changes and put in a good wellbeing strategy, what are the real ingredients to make it successful? And the first one is authenticity. It cannot be a box ticking exercise, uh, you know, tick the CSR box. Do your people believe you? Do your people trust you? Is it genuine? Absolutely. Number one, because if, if it's lip service and it doesn't become part of your culture, it's not going to work. Tone from the top is essential. We were very, very fortunate that we, our board was very much behind it as have the whole of the NatWest team. Um, it, it's absolutely essential that your top team engaged yeah. and talk the talk and, and walk it as well. And one of the things that we were asked is, you know, how effective, what, what sort of return will we get? And uh, there's a, a great study by Accenture. So if you talk about return on equity, it's something like 11 times that any money a company spends on wellbeing initiatives, they get 11 times return. That's how they measure it. And so there isn't really any downside, but it's got, you know, it's got to be authentic. Yeah. Um, it's, it's the financial, legal and ethical 
reasons why organizations need to yeah. support it, isn't it? Absolutely. So important that the top team are, are, are on board. Yeah. Um, establishment of ambassador network. So you can't do it all yourself. Um, we found, we initially said if we can get sort of 10 or 20 at Keeks, uh, we had over a hand within about six month period. Um, that was really important. It just gave an outlet. So you see, so you've got hundred people that are really supportive and can talk to people, but they're also, they're spreading the message about the wellbeing initiatives and how important it is. So, you know, we had 1600 employees, so it's a fairly big percentage of people. I've talked about line managers and focusing on them really important. Um, the wellbeing hub. So that was something that we established internally at Kitty we had stories on there. We had all the references. So we didn't try and reinvent the wheel because there was some brilliant stuff from Bruce at Western RBS that we wanted to sort of just build on what they had, but try and make it a little bit different. So the stories were really impactful. There's a video that we put out there on, 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 on our client website called This Is Me. It was a Barclays initiative and it's basically where people give a little snippet. It has been the most watched video that Coots have ever had in terms of their client engagement. So it is a really good thing to talk about. Um, personal disclosure, I mean, you, you hear people who talk about things and open up and get the conversation going. It's incredibly powerful. And we had, we put videos together from people on the executive committee, right the way down to, you know, someone in the sort of the call center, every single level talking about mental health. Um, yeah. and that, that was. Really, super, really important. Yeah, super powerful. And it's also essential, isn't it, that, that, that there is a strong support network before that really happens, right? Yeah. Um, or as that's happening, because otherwise people can be left uh, feeling too vulnerable, if you like. Yeah. Um, so it's a, that's super important. And your final one there, Miles? Yeah, driven by passionate people. So we, we were really, yeah. um, we had a lot of people come forward. And we, me and Mike were really, you know, we wanted people who were generally interested and that we didn't want people who just wanted, oh, that'll look good on my CV to be involved in wellbeing. So we kind of tested them a bit, but we just ended up with, with such an authentic team, people who, I mean, the, the stuff we had to do initially for my team, we, you know, we, 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 we provided a, a, enough health check for everyone in the company that wanted one, the logistics and I, you know, the stuff I had to get involved that I'd never really done before learned loads of new skills, but having people that really care about it and are passionate about it is, is, is how you make it land. Absolutely. Fundamental. Okay. I'm just going to ask you very, very quick fire questions uh, now, Miles. So what does vulnerability mean to you? Vulnerability mean, uh, kind of human, human touch. You know, we are all vulnerable, um, and don't, don't keep it under, you know, don't keep it under the radar. Lovely. What message would you, get, would you give your younger self? Um, really, really get a good work-life balance. Don't, don't make everything about work. Um, I've got a, a mantra. I work at, I'm always working at 75, 80%. So you've got 20% when the proverbial hits a fan. If you're at a hundred, you've got nowhere to go. So I always say yeah, to my children, really think about your mental health really talk to us if you've ever got problems that there's nothing that you can't talk to us about. Fabulous. Yeah. Great. So great connections as well. And what do you think every person should do to best support their colleagues? Listen, um, be empathetic, um, show you care. 
most, most people really care about their colleagues. Um, if you get that culture and have that, but, but also help help people to take an action because that's the one thing to, you know, what, what I've learned, I've, I've had all sorts of people in different situations come and talk to me and that, that first step is so hard. Yeah. But always, Listen. if you can lead them with something that they can do, because ultimately it's the individuals that have to get themselves out of the hole and they, they've got to kind of own it. And, and it takes time for, for people to actually own it. So helping them to take ownership. Great. Thank you, Miles. We'll hold it there. Thank you so much. I'll hand over to my colleague, Angus. Thank you. Great. One of the things I love about what we do, Miles, is we meet amazing people, we hear incredible things, and we listen to amazing stories. That was incredible. The confidence that you speak with is uh, really inspiring, actually, and, and the openness and the honesty. Um, it's great to hear mental health being described as refreshing. Yeah, it's not a word that we've heard a lot. And uh, also to hear that being in the present, which is much more capacity. I like 94% of things that don't happen, but I also like your 6% of things that do happen. You've got a tactic to deal with that. So, um, you know, that's one of my takeaways today. Um, I think it shows great progress when line managers are staying. It's my duty to make sure everybody is open. Yeah, that's great progress. And uh, also, your best investment you've ever made was getting help. Yeah, very inspiring. So I'm looking forward to hearing about the next 20 years of part runs. Yeah. <laughs> Get those trainers out. And uh, so thank you very, very much. We have been really inspired and uh, it's been thought-provoking to hear your story. Thank you. Uh, next month on the Wellbeing Hour, we have Dennis Fishbacker-Smith. And he is research professor of risk and resilience at the University of Glasgow. And he's going to be talking about managing without conceptions, mind without ego. Again, it's, it's, um, I think it's going to be a really interesting one. So please join us uh, for that. Uh, if you like what we do, please follow us on LinkedIn. It does make a difference. And uh, we always advertise things like this there. If we could help you at all, get in touch with us. And, um, we work with everybody from senior teams, right, and line managers to frontline. And uh, we'll send you some information. So if there's nothing else, I wish you all a very good Thursday. And uh, thank you very much again, Miles. Thank you, Miles. Thank you, everyone. Thanks for listening to the Wellbeing Hour. We hope you enjoyed the conversation. These events take place regularly, so do join us for more. And if your organisation would like to develop a mentally healthy culture, we'd be happy to work with your senior team, people managers and frontline staff please get in touch at headtorch.org. We look forward to hearing from you.